Testing one, two, testing one, two, that's great. An electronic battery warning light flashing tells me that already this morning I've done too much talking. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to start this morning a seven-part series of sermons uh, titled, for want of a better title, Famous Christians of the 20th Century. And today we'll be looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Over the following weeks, we'll be hearing about Mother Teresa of Calcutta, C.S. Lewis, Mama Maggie of Cairo, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, and Amy Oxley Wilkinson. Uh, Why are we doing this? Well, uh, for the past two years, we have been each year running a short um, church history sermon series. Uh, You may remember hearing about uh, Martin Luther a few years ago, and last year, the English Reformation. Uh, It is important to understand our own history. Um, We only really understand uh, where we are when we get to know how we got here. Nevertheless, I don't want to accidentally present you with a series of lectures. My job here really is to preach as well as to teach, so I will be aiming to present sermons that challenge, that challenge us to change our thinking and our behavior as we grow in the knowledge and love of God and as we consider how the grace of God has been manifest in the lives of others. As our prayer book puts it, we praise you, Father, For all your servants whose lives have honored Christ, encourage us by their example so that we may run with perseverance the race that lies before us and share with them the fullness of joy in your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Encourage us by their example. Well, um, so who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Um, He was a famous German theologian when World War II began. Uh, Back one slide. There we are. That's it. Um, He was a famous German theologian when World War II began. At that time, he'd been uh, an outspoken critic of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis for a long time and was a member of the German resistance. He forsook opportunities to leave Germany as the war began, choosing instead to stay in his homeland, come what may. His involvement with a group that was planning the assassination of Hitler saw his arrest by the Gestapo in April 1943 and his execution in April 1945, less than a month before the war in Europe ended. Bonhoeffer's life raises some important questions about how we respond to evil times. In the face of evil, do we flee or do we stay? Is it right to resist an evil regime? How far are we prepared to go for something that we believe in? And when does the end justify the means? Well, um, his early life, Dietrich was born in Germany on the 4th of February, 1906, with his twin sister, Sabine, the sixth of an eventual eight children. Uh, His parents were wealthy and financially successful, of high professional status. Uh, His father, Karl, was a professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Berlin. His mother, Paula, descended from... Uh, um, German aristocracy. 
The family was not a particularly religious family, and the children were homeschooled. As a child, uh, Dietrich exhibited an exceptional talent for music, and he was a gifted pianist. He was a bright boy. He excelled at chess. Um, but he was, also, he was also one of those guys who was a talented athlete as well. Uh, he's really good at tennis, I understand. Most thought that he would follow his father into psychiatry or become a musician. However, Dietrich surprised everyone when he announced at the age of 14, uh, that's uh, not a photo of him age 14, I think he's age 24 there, but when he was 14, he announced that he had decided he would become a theologian and a pastor. His older brother asked him why he wanted to waste his life in such a, quote, poor, feeble, boring, petty, bourgeois institution as the church. Dietrich replied, if what you say is true, I shall reform it. By the way, I think the word bourgeois um, means literally city dweller. Uh, it equates to something like middle class, um, and it's a word that's generally used pejoratively uh, as a put-down, meaning something that's predictively conservative, materialistic, and narrow-minded. I think that's what it means. Anyway, um, at university, Dietrich studied theology, and he did very well. He graduating from the University of Berlin in 1924. He earned a Doctor of Theology a degree by the remarkably young age of 21. Um, his thesis was considered groundbreaking at the time. At age 24, still considered to be too young to be ordained, he traveled to New York to undertake more research and to lecture in Bible colleges there. Uh, an African-American friend introduced him to an African-American Baptist church in Harlem, where he taught Sunday school and where he fell in love with African-American gospel music. Although he'd had a very privileged upbringing, these experiences allowed him to begin to appreciate how things were for people who experienced hardship, rejection, and depression. Dietrich began to be able to see things from below, from the point of view of those who suffer oppression. He later referred to this point in his life as the time when he, quote, turned from phraseology to reality, unquote. Dietrich returned uh, from the USA to Germany in 1931 and took up a post at the University of Berlin. Uh, finally, in that year, he was ordained a church pastor um, in Berlin at the age of 25. Well, things were changing very rapidly in Germany at about this time. The Nazis came to power in January uh, 1933, Adolf Hitler was installed as the Chancellor of Germany. Um, Bonhoeffer spoke at that time on a radio program attacking Hitler and warning Germany against worshipping Hitler as Führer, Führer, which Bonhoeffer saw clearly was, in essence, basically a dangerous religious cult. His message, incidentally, was cut off mid-sentence. Bonhoeffer was... Um, one of the very, very, very few people speaking up publicly um, against Hitler. He spoke out against the Nazis' euthanasia program and against the persecution of the Jews. Bonhoeffer wanted church-going Christians to protest and felt that the church had a role to play in stopping Hitler, 
saying that the church must not simply, quote, bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spoke in the wheel itself, unquote. However, at rigged elections, the leadership of the national church was filled with people, um, church people who supported uh, the Nazis. And thereafter followed many changes within the German national church. Pastors who had Jewish ancestry were removed. And many were demanding the removal of the Old Testament from the Bible, claiming that it was heresy. In 1934, Bonhoeffer and others had organized a new church, called the Confessing Church, uh, insisting that Jesus Christ, not Adolf Hitler, was the head of the church in Germany. At about this time, Bonhoeffer accepted a job in London, um, a two-year appointment as the pastor of two German-speaking Protestant congregations in London. Bonhoeffer was very disappointed and depressed about how things were going in his native land, and he basically had enough. Knowing all this rejection and hostility, he'd had enough. But his, his friend, Karl Barth, himself a famous theologian, you may have heard of Karl Barth, Karl rebuked him for running away from helping in the fight against Hitler. Bonhoeffer, on the other hand, used his time in London to raise awareness and support for the Confessing Church movement back home. In 1935, Bonhoeffer was given an opportunity to travel to India to meet Gandhi and to study nonviolent resistance. He wanted to go, but in the end he declined, instead deciding to return to Germany. By this time, many of his friends had either been arrested or had fled to other countries. Bonhoeffer himself was denounced by the Nazi regime as a pacifist and enemy of the state. He lost his job at the University of Berlin and from then on spent much time encouraging and teaching and training Christians underground, uh, that is to say, privately, secretly, in fear of the authorities. And it was during that time that he wrote uh, probably his most famous book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, and uh, it's from that book, The Cost of Discipleship, that we get uh, the phrase cheap grace um, or costly grace, phrases that we still, still use. Um, anyway, uh, in February 1938, Bonhoeffer needed to decide what to do. Like so many, he could flee the situation in Germany and live overseas. If he stayed in Germany, he would at some point in time or another be called up for military service, and as part of that, he would be forced to swear an oath of obedience to Hitler, something he knew he could never do. Failing to take the oath was against the law and could potentially mean death by hanging. Yet at that time, most German Christians believed that it was wrong to refuse military service, and Bonhoeffer knew that he would be discredited as a church leader if he refused military service. In June of 1939, Bonhoeffer uh, left for um, the United States of America. However, as soon as he had got there, as soon as he arrived, he felt that he'd made a terrible mistake. He wrote to a friend, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to Germany, sorry, in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history 
with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Bonhoeffer uh, knew that this was a desperate time for German Christians. Uh, should, should, should a German Christian hope to lose the war in order that Christianity survive and deny their German identity? Or should they hope for Germany to win the war? Something that Bonhoeffer knew would mean the end of civilization. Well, Bonhoeffer crossed the Atlantic from the US back home to Germany on the last boat before the war began. Back in uh, Germany, Bonhoeffer was harassed by the Nazi authorities, forbidden to speak in public, forbidden to publish anything, and made to report regularly to the police. But amazingly, considering all of this, he was able to get a job in the ABVA, a, a military intelligence organization like America's CIA. Uh, he was able to do this for a number of reasons. Firstly, he had strong family connections within the organization, and they argued that um, being a man who was astonishingly well-traveled for his day, they argued that he had a, a number of good international connections that could be useful. Um, uh, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law worked for this organization, and there were many within the organization that were plotting to overthrow and assassinate Hitler. Um, we, we often have little idea just how much um, hatred there was of Adolf Hitler in Germany during the war. Um, but there were many plots on his life. Uh, there was a German resistance, all working to seek to rid Germany of Hitler and the Nazis. Working with the Abwehr, um, Bonhoeffer almost certainly heard about and knew about a number of plots against Adolf Hitler. And also, under the cover of this organization, Bonhoeffer was able to help some German Jews to escape from Germany and to make contacts uh, in other countries in seeking support for the Confessing Church and the German resistance. All of this, of course, every single one of those things I've just mentioned put Bonhoeffer in extreme danger. Um, all of these things, any of these things, one of these things could lead to his execution. In April of 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo, um, Hitler's secret uh, state police, um, uh, a bit like uh, the Soviet Union's uh, KGB. Um, actually, he wasn't arrested because of plots against Hitler, but rather because the Gestapo was jealous of Abwa and wanted to take it over. Um, Adolf Hitler had two military intelligence organizations, and the Gestapo was jealous of Abwa. However, in searching the files belonging to Abwa, it eventually became clear that Bonhoeffer was intimately connected with people plotting to kill Adolf Hitler. Well, after his arrest, Bonhoeffer spent about two years in various prisons, detention centers, and concentration camps. During this time, he helped fellow prisoners and guards and made such an impact on them that he won the sympathy, admiration, and assistance of the prison guards. 
One of them offered to help him escape and that they could both disappear together. But Bonhoeffer declined for fear that the Nazis would take it out on his family. Also during this time, and with the secret assistance of of the guards, Bonhoeffer was able to write books and letters to his family, including to his fiancée. He he was engaged to be married. In uh, April uh, 1945, with uh, Germany steering at certain defeat, with the Nazi regime collapsing, um, and with continuing plots against uh, his life, Adolf Hitler ordered for all conspirators to be immediately put to death. Without a trial of any kind, Bonhoeffer's execution was ordered on April 8, 1945, and the very next day, at dawn, Bonhoeffer was led into a courtyard, told to strip naked, uh, and then hung with a thin wire uh, for death by strangulation. Uh, He was executed along with several others. According to the camp doctor, he died peacefully and swiftly. Amazed by his composure and his prayers, uh, the doctor later recalled that, quote, in almost 50 years of being a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Um, that account of uh, Bonhoeffer's death was accepted on face value for many decades. Uh, more recently, though, historians have found compelling reasons to doubt it suggesting that possibly the doctor was trying to cover up his own culpability in being associated with those executions. The contemporary conclusion is actually that we don't know anything about how Dietrich died, but that it is likely to have involved torture. A month later, the war was over. I think actually two weeks later, the war was over. Um, Well, what is uh, Dietrich's uh, legacy? Um, Bonhoeffer's theological books, letters, writings, and poetry continue to inspire Christians throughout the world. Bonhoeffer is uh, commemorated um, by many Christians as a martyr. Um, This is a photograph of a statue at Westminster Abbey, uh, London, of him as a Christian martyr. Um, when, when we say the word martyr, the, the common everyday meaning of that word is somebody who was killed for something, but actually the word martyr is the Greek word for witness. Um, witness. Uh, although he wasn't explicitly executed for being a Christian, yet for him being a Christian meant not running away from the terrible decisions that German Christians had to make at a difficult time. And ultimately it meant that he took none of the easy roads that would have led him to safety and away from the executioner. Um, So let's then think theologically about the nature of his witness. What is he a martyr to? What does he witness to? In the face of evil, in the face of persecution, when we are hated and rejected, do we flee or do we stay? Um, That question actually has fascinated me for years because actually it continues to be astonishingly relevant uh, to the everyday lives of Christians in every place and at every time. It's pastorally relevant here at St. Barnabas um, on a regular basis. I'm being persecuted. What do I do? Um, uh, It's astonishingly relevant. 
So it's, I've thought about it, and I have an answer. I think it's the right answer. But, of course, it's not the only answer. And my answer is this. In the face of persecution, the standard Christian response is to flee. We see this in the life of David when he flees from his son Absalom and the coup attempt in order to avoid civil war. Jesus routinely leaves places wherever his life is under threat or when he's even just asked to go. Jesus ups and leaves. In the book of Acts, the typical response of Christians to persecutions is to leave. And in that same book, we see a detailed account of much of Paul's life. And from that, we know that Paul was incredibly well-practiced at escaping, leaving, departing, going, running away. He was really good at it. He'd had a lot of practice. That this is so, that it is our usual response to persecution to leave, it can be explained or understood in a number of ways. It is, after all, a robust form of loving our enemies, something that we are commanded to do. If we're fighting over sandpits, just give them the sandpit, even if you were there first. When we flee, we save people from the guilt that would be attached to them had they been able to carry out their evil plans against us. We love them by saving them from guilt. Um, we're saving them from sinning against us further. We also, it's, you know, when we have to leave that sandpit, it's actually a witness of our trust in God that actually life is not about sandpits, uh, that we know that God will look after us even when we do not know where we're going or what we will eat. At first glance, then, I think Bonhoeffer did the right thing in fleeing Germany, in going into exile in the US or UK. I think, indeed, it would have been good and right for more to have followed his example in doing so. Nevertheless, of course, having said that's the standard response, there's always a time for staying. There's always a time for walking into where you know you have to go. Jesus survived many attempts on his life but, uh, because his day had not yet come. But when his day was approaching, he turned his face steadfastly to Jerusalem and he walked in that way, knowing what awaited him in that city, knowing precisely what awaited him in that city. And so did Paul. Despite many, many Christians begging him not to, Paul also walked into Jerusalem uh, knowing, believing that it was God's will for him to follow in Christ's footsteps, even if that meant dying in Jerusalem, something that, in fact, did not happen. Um, but, but he knew it was the time to walk into persecution, not away from it. We must trust that Bonhoeffer returned to Germany because actually it was God's particular will for him to do so, to be there in Germany for the sake of the church in Germany at that crucial time. Uh, how did he know that this was God's will for his life? Well, he had the witness of friends like Karl Barth telling him to return. He had the witness of circumstances. God opened the door for him to return at just the last moment, a door that Christ, the king of all doors, could easily have closed. And he had the witness of his own conscience. 
He knew what Jesus was calling to him to personally. Um, even if it meant, even, even, if, even if everyone would have understood if he'd stayed, uh, even if people had encouraged him to stay, he knew in his heart what Jesus wanted him to do. So do we go or do we flee? No simple answers there. Dietrich's life begs that we think about it, though. Is it right to resist an evil regime? How far are we prepared to go for something that we believe in? When does the end justify the means? Both uh, Paul and Peter write in the Bible that all Christians are to be in submission to all governing authorities and powers, for this is God's will. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Christians are to be submissive to those in authority over them, even when that authority is misused. Uh, Peter is explicit about this. Even when we suffer unjustly, we are to bear up under it and to submit to it, for this is Christ's example to us, and we are to walk in his footsteps. And Paul writes in Romans 13 that there are no governments, no rulers, no authorities except that which God has ordained and that consequently whoever rebels against what God has instituted rebels against God and brings the judgment of God upon themselves. Paul concludes Romans 13 verse 5, Therefore it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment but also as a matter of conscience. Thus, it has been assumed for centuries that our Christian duty was always to obey those in charge. And as a witness and testimony to this, we have uh, the north wall of our church with all of these plaques and commemorative um, um, uh, shields uh, to people who died in the First World War. And they say things like, for God and empire and for God, king, and country. In other words, the claims of ruler, country, and God are identical, coextensive, interchangeable, incapable of being distinguished. That's how people thought in living memory up until recently, certainly right up until World War II. Thus, there are many Christians in Germany um, who may have disagreed or felt uncomfortable with Hitler and his agenda, yet nevertheless believed that God would be pleased if they submitted to his leadership and obeyed. Bonhoeffer, in contrast, chose neither to flee nor to obey. They're, they're the two obvious things to do. He did neither. He chose actually to speak up to the bully to work secretly in opposition to his policies, to comfort and support those who were being persecuted, and to plot with others the bully's death. Was he right to do that? I don't think there's an entirely clear-cut answer to that. Uh, certainly, Christians, uh, for us in modern times, we've grown way more comfortable in the idea that it's good to challenge those in power. And we've realized theologically that submission and obedience are not exactly the same thing. They're very, they're very similar. They're very close ideas. But to submit ultimately is to recognize God-given authority, not necessarily to unquestioningly obey. Um, 
Bonhoeffer's life and his response to his times confront us with what it means to belong to God and how we might serve him in desperate, desperate times and circumstances. Um, I, for one, think Bonhoeffer died a rebel's death. God does not bless rebellion. Um, he, he died a rebel's death having uh, rebelled. But I don't know anyone else who thinks that. That's just me. What did Bonhoeffer think? Well, actually, Bonhoeffer, I think, he understood it perhaps um, well, more intimately than I can. Um, he understood, I think, that he, he understood an important truth that in such times he actually had to get his hands dirty to insist upon preserving his own blamelessness when all around him were having to do unspeakable things in the fight of freedom, to insist upon his own sinlessness and blamelessness um, would have been, in a sense, to have been hypocritical. Um, Life was too dirty to worry about the cleanliness of your own hands. He knew that, as with many of the prophets of old, no one comes out of such circumstances smelling like roses. Um, (laughs) But in essence, the witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he knew that doing the right thing, he knew that following Jesus would kill him. Uh, It would cost him his life. And that's what Jesus said it would cost us. That's actually exactly what Jesus said it would cost us. He just knew it in a more plain, stark, clear way than, than, than we sometimes see. And he saw that following Jesus would cost him his life, just as Jesus said it would, and he didn't flinch from that. Even when he found himself in jail, he knew that God had a purpose for him being there. And he knew that even in jail, he could trust God, and work at being a blessing to those around him. Uh, Encourage us, Lord, by their example, so that we may run with perseverance the the race that lies before us, and that we too may share with them the fullness of joy in your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.